Everybody hear me okay? Does this sound loud enough? All right, great. And if this pops off, let me know. We've been having a little technical difficulty, so if it happens to go off, just let me know. We'll get it squared away. So there's a local pastor here who teaches, um, we'll call it teaching in air quotes, uh, a very large congregation, at least 30,000 immediate influenced here in Atlanta, uh, a lot, lot more worldwide. And recently he did a sermon series talking about uh, the usefulness of the Old Testament. And on this, uh, or, or on their website, they, he has a video of this sermon. And the title says this, or the description of the, the sermon itself says this. If you were raised on a version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia or the realities of life, Maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to consider the version of Christianity that relies on the event of the resurrection of Jesus at its foundation. If you gave up your faith because of something about or in the Bible, maybe you gave up unnecessarily. Within that, he makes this scary, uh, sad statement. He says this, First century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures via the Old Testament, right? The Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus created and launched Christianity. Christianity, excuse me. Your whole house of Old Testament cards can come tumbling down. The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And the eyewitnesses said he did. He goes on. It's liberating for men and women who are drawn to the simple message that God loves you so much He sent His Son to pave the way to a relationship with you. It's liberating for people who need and understand grace, who need and understand forgiveness. And it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic, the worldview, and the values values system depicted in the story of ancient Israel. Folks, what we have here is nothing less than an absolute neglect to the foundational truths and the principles that we find in the Old Testament. There are so many things wrong with this statement. The fact that he says that the new covenant can stand alone is a silly statement. We will see here today that every covenant within the scriptures, within the Bible, rely upon one another as a perfectly woven, harmonious thread. They, they take us all the way from the beginning, from God's very first foundation of in the beginning the, wor- the, earth, the earth was formed all the way through to what will happen someday in eternity. Sadly, this is what people are being taught in churches is that the Old Testament is irrelevant. It's antiquated. It's unnecessary. It's worthless in a sense. So just simply by unhinging, un- unhitching ourselves, as he says, from the Old Testament, we'll be okay. But hear me out on this argument. If we have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, what about all of the book of Hebrews? 
talks about that we have a great high priest who is like the one of the order of Melchizedek, right? So we have to get rid of Hebrews. What about the beginning of Matthew? What does Matthew start with? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, all the way from the Old Testament. So if we have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, then we have to throw out Matthew too. What about John? What does John start with? In the beginning. See you, John. You're out of here too. Galatians talks about the Old Testament and the necessity of the law, of the, unnecess- the, of the unnecessary portions of it. So you guys get the point, right? We have to throw out all of Scripture if we throw out any portion of Scripture. It's all one harmonious thread. It all fill, or builds upon itself and relies upon itself. And so today what I want us to do is I want us to look through all of Scripture and I want us to see God's perfect redemptive plan all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament and even beyond that. We're going to see that through Revelation, Jesus says that this is the perfect plan that is still coming. So we're going to look at today a theology of covenants. And I want that not to be confused with a biblical or a uh, covenant theology. We're not talking about a covenant theology. We're talking about a theology of covenants. And we're going to look at these covenants and we're going to see perfectly how the Lord uses these covenants, these five covenants that we're going to talk about, to unravel and advance his perfect program of saving sinful, sinful people for all eternity. So I've titled this, The Redemptive Plan of Yahweh. And I'll start off by asking this question. And if you are a seminary student, Mark Nandino, do not answer this question. What does the term Yahweh mean? And why is it significant that I would label this the redemptive plan of Yahweh, not just the redemptive plan of God or the redemptive plan of of Jesus? Why would I name this the redemptive plan of Yahweh? Who knows what that term means? Go ahead. The Lord God Almighty. I think there's an aspect of that, absolutely. But there's a more specific term. Go ahead. Covenant-keeping God, right? When this term is used in the Old Testament, you guys will see it a lot of times, the capital L-O-R-D, right? All capitals. This is a very specific term, and it's used in very specific situations by the authors to invoke a memory of who God is, and that is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, faithful, faithful God, a God who has made promises and we can trust will keep them. Just read any portion of Old Testament and read that and notice that when that is used, it is within that. It is invoking a memory, a reminder of who this God is. So we're going to look through God's or Yahweh's covenant-keeping redemptive plan, understanding the biblical covenant. So I'll ask you guys, what is a covenant? What do you guys think a covenant is? Give me a definition of a covenant. Anything? Absolutely. The dictionary term is an agreement between two or more parties where one or both are obligated to keep a commitment. Think business partnership, right? Financial agreement. When you purchase a house, you sign a document that says, I will commit to making these payments. You are giving me something. I'm giving you something in return. What about marriage? You keep a covenant or you make a covenant when you marry, right? Absolutely. Unfortunately, that, even that covenant has been tarnished today, right? It's not seen as a, a true covenant or true agreement. But theologically, a covenant 
is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and His people. Right? As we will see clearly, this is a relationship that is set forth by God. It is God who in His faithfulness sets these things forth. He establishes these covenants. And He ensures that these covenants will be carried out and completed. And it's fundamental that we understand that. So what is so important about the covenants? Why do you guys think it's important that we understand these covenants? I'll ask you guys that. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Why would it be fundamental that we would understand these biblical covenants? Absolutely. And we're obligated to keep some portion of these, right? Absolutely. Well, I've got a few things here, and this is what I want us to accomplish as we study through this. First, we need to understand that covenants are so important because they're first a fundamental or basic knowledge of the covenants will allow for a richer understanding of the entirety of Scripture. Just as I've already argued, every jot and tittle, as Scripture says, is important, it's profitable for reproof, for rebuke, for the building up of the church, even the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, I would say. The New Testament is founded on the Old Testament. They're not separate books. They're not the New Testament is this thing and the Old Testament. They're all one continuous book, just written in different periods of time. So the Old Testament is not antiquated. All of Scripture is profitable. And as we'll see through these covenants, there is, again, this perfectly woven thread that connects all of Scripture. Second, a clear knowledge of the covenants will provide a more robust perspective of God's ultimate redemptive plan. As we'll see that God wants to reestablish a relationship that's broken, and we're going to look at that in the Noahic covenant. We see that in the fall of Genesis 3, man falls, we separate ourselves from God, the relationship is broken, it's severed. But God, through His perfect plan, immediately says, I have a plan. Serpent, you are going to bruise this man's heel, but he is going to bruise your head. Immediately we see God's plan go straight into action. And it's a redemptive plan. God wants a relationship with His people. And we're going to see how these covenants give us that understanding. And then, last, the sound knowledge of the covenants will lead to a healthy view of the future of the church and Israel. We need to understand that there is a future hope for Israel, for the church, for all of God's people. But there's also a future for those who don't believe in this truth, that don't believe in Jesus as the Savior. Again, this is not just past and present, but this is future implications. Absolutely future implications. Not all of God's promises have been fulfilled and still have a future completion. Therefore, we need to understand how these covenants play into the future for all of us and for all of Israel. Listen to this quote by Irvin Bucinitz. He's a professor at Master's Seminary. It says, Let no one underestimate the importance and significance of a correct understanding of the divine covenants. It is much more than an intellectual pursuit. 
They provide a most foundational theological anchor for understanding God's working in human history. Understanding these covenants will shape a person's understanding of Scripture. It will reflect a hermeneutical course that will determine the pitch of one's eschatological sails. Careful attention to these covenants will bear an overwhelming abundance of fruitfulness. When God enters into a unilateral covenant guaranteed only by His own faithfulness, when God enters into a covenant void of any human requirements to keep it in force, when God establishes a covenant that will continue as long as there is day and night and summer and winter, then great care must be taken not to erect man-made limitations that would bankrupt the heart and soul of these covenants and annul the glorious full realization of all that He promised through them. Their significance cannot be overestimated. What a beautiful statement on these covenants and what we can get out of them. The theological implications, the heart implications. I love that he says that careful attention to these covenants will bear an overwhelming abundance of fruitfulness. They are meant to change us and to cause us to be more like Christ, to mold us into his image. And so we have to bear witness to them. And trust them. Some important hermeneutical principles, or as far as hermeneutics means, just just rules to how we must read and interpret these covenants. First, we need to understand that God uses these covenants through progressive revelation. What do I mean by progressive revelation? Well, God reveals his plan progressively instead of all at once, right? You guys know that. That's basic. But that means that we need to understand each covenant that as he reveals each covenant, they're not annulling one another. They're not avoiding one another. They're not superseding one another. Simply what they're doing is making his plan more and more clear through redemptive history. Again, they are harmonious and beautifully they work together to advance God's redemptive plan. So in other words, hermeneutically, we have to study them in order. We can't just pick and pull. They have to be studied in order from one through the other. William Barrick says this, The plan and will of God is progressive in its development. God leads his people along step by step through the different circumstances and stages of history. He graciously provides them with the revelation they need to face the changing face of history. God deals differently with his people in different periods of time because he has a different purpose for them in the progressive development of his plan of redemption. God is so gracious, isn't he, that he would not just dump all of this on feeble, weak, uh, just full of sinful hearts, but he slowly reveals his plan. And by God's grace, where all of us sit today, we have his whole plan revealed, right? We have the full entirety of Scripture to where we can look at all of this. What a gracious gift. A lot of people in these, uh, that will, will go through these covenants experience just portions of it. They never got to see the full redemptive plan. But we get to. And we can go through this thread and see it, right? Next. Context, context, context. It is king. I'm sure you've heard that a million times. It's just as true now. The context of the covenants is crucial to understand both historically and textually. Why would I say that? You guys tell me what is so significant about understanding these specific covenants in their uh, context, historically and textually. What do you guys think? 
Sure. That's right. Sure, sure. What else? Think about this. There are some covenants that were specifically given to specific people at specific times, right? Therefore, we cannot expect, or excuse me, therefore we cannot read them as if they were all meant specifically for us today. The Mosaic Covenant was not written to the church. It was written to Israel specifically. And we need to understand that. Why? Because there are people out there that would say, well, that is a part of a, a, theolo- a covenant theology. And we need to read into that. They're speaking to us. We need to abstain from this. We need to abstain from that. We need to understand that these uh, covenants were written to specific people at specific times for specific reasons. And we have to know that. Because the covenants are given for a specific purpose at a specific time in history, at a specific location, it must be understood that the church today may not have the same obligations or relationship that Israel did. Again, we need to understand this, okay, guys? We, we're, we cannot just place ourselves into every one of these covenants. They were written for a specific purpose to specific people at a specific time. So the covenants. What are the covenants? What are the five covenants? What do you guys, what do you think? We've got five covenants that we're going to go over. You can argue for six, maybe seven, but we will save that for another time. We're going to go through the five covenants that I think are clearly, clearly defined and given the term covenant within scripture. Does anybody know what the five are? Well, what's before that? Noahic? Abrahamic? Go ahead. Mosaic? Davidic, and then the New Covenant. Absolutely. So the way that we're going to study through these, we're just going to go through them. What I want us to study is specific portions of these. For each different covenant, we're going to look at the background or the need for the covenant. Okay. We're going to look at the offering of the covenant. When was it offered? Who was it offered to? And why was it offered? We're going to look at the sign. Each covenant comes with a sign. We're going to look at the conditionality of it. Are there conditions on it? Do we have conditions? Do we have obligations to these covenants? We're going to look at their duration and length because that is important too, right? Some people would say, well, this covenant doesn't work anymore. We're going to see that most of these are eternal. We're going to look at the nature of them. And then very quickly, we're going to see how they correlate with the other covenants. We want to make this very, very clear. So we're going to look at those different things. So first, let's look at the Noahic Covenant. Have your Bibles ready. We're, we're moving, okay? We're moving. The Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant is generally found uh, Genesis 6 through 9. You can find it in chapters 6 through 9. But specifically, the first thing we're going to look at is the background and the need for this covenant. Open your Bibles up to chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. And follow along as I read this. Listen to this. This is the background and the need for this covenant. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let's just stop right there. What does that tell us about the condition of man? Sinful. Only sinful 
always sinful, continually sinful. What an indictment. We see the fall, right, in chapter 3. And then we jump ahead here. And I love the title on the top of this. If you guys have ever done this, or you haven't done this, I encourage you to do this. Go through all of Scripture and try to, chap- uh, try to um, title every chapter. It is such a challenge because it teaches you to really dig into what is the author trying to write here. But I think this is perfect. The title of this chapter is Increasing Corruption on the Earth. It does not get any more blatant than that. We see the fall. We see sin enter, enter into the world. We immediately see all this happening. And then we jump ahead and it says, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You could go on and see there through verse 18, but for time's sake... um, Oh, actually, no, we do need to go through that. I apologize. Let's continue. Verse 9, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. It goes through uh, his his generations here. And then in uh, verse 14, it says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside out with pitch. This is how you are to make it in its length. Of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which it is the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is on it, uh, that is on the earth, shall die. Verse 18. But... I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, they male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of the creeping things according uh, of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come to keep them alive." Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that the Lord had commanded him. So the Lord says, I am going to destroy all of earth. What was the immediate consequence of sin in the garden? The immediate consequence. What did the Lord say? What's that? Absolutely. But specifically what is happening here? Death, right? Immediately death enters in. That is the consequence. And the Lord is enacting His faithfulness to say, you want to live this way, you want your sin, then the consequence is indeed death. So we see that the background or the need of this covenant is man's continual wickedness, his evil, wicked heart. And this is the background of all covenants, right? I mean, this shows why God needs to give us a redemptive plan. This is why God has to enact and bring about a great high priest who can sacrifice for us, who can be the propitiation for sins. This is our need. Next, let's look at the offering of the covenant, the offering of it. When was it offered? Look at Genesis 8.22. Genesis 8.22. Excuse me, 8.20. 
So as you all know, God wipes out every family on the earth except for Noah's family. He graciously saves them. Which again, just as a side note, is just an illustration of the mercy and grace of God. He could have wiped every person on the face of the earth out justly, rightly, because of the condition of man's heart. But by His grace, He continues through this family. And we know that every family is a descendant from this family now, right? What a gracious gift that He could have wiped out everybody, but He didn't. And so we see that they get into the ark and the flood subsides and that brings us here now to where they have, uh, the flood has subsided. They have now left it. In verse 20 of chapter 8, we see this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Verse 22. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Again, the grace of the Lord on display that he says, I will never do this again. This is just mere man. This is how they're born. This is, they can't help themselves. says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is who they are. So he offers this covenant, and it's offered to all mankind. It's important that we understand that we're all recipients of this grace. Is the earth still spinning on its axis right now? Are we still experiencing the seasons? Absolutely. If you have allergies, you know that this covenant is real. What about the sign of this covenant? What about the sign of this covenant? What do you think the sign of the covenant is? The what? The rainbow. Absolutely. Chapter 9, verses 12 through 17 says this. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Stop there. This is not just humankind. This is that he's making this sign for the earth too, right? We see later on in scripture that the earth is groaning for redemption to be redeemed by God. This is a sign not just for humankind, but for all of the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. That is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. When was the last time that you saw a rainbow and you praised God? And say, thank you, Lord, for not wiping us out because we deserve it. That is meant to be a sign for us and a reminder of his mercy and his grace. And I've taught this before, and some of you are going to chuckle at this, but I still find it amazing that a group of people use this as their sign, as their symbol. And what a self-indictment it is that there is a certain group of people that use this as a banner, as a flag, 
and have no idea what it really means. What a self-indictment. What a great illustration of Genesis 6-5. But the heart is continually wicked, right? And think about this. This is significant too. Where is a rainbow seen? In the sky, right? The sky is a place of universal view. It's universal. Everybody can see it. And not everybody acknowledges it, right? Think of Psalm, uh, Psalm 19. The heavens and the earth declare his glory. Just another illustration of that. What a wonderful, wonderful gift. What about the conditionality of it? Well, are there any conditions on it? What do you guys think? Did God say these are the stipulations you have to do this in order for this covenant to continue? No. There's no conditions and it's given unilaterally by God. He says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature. Verse 17, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between us and all flesh that is on the earth. God enacts this. So there are no conditions and it's given unilaterally by God. What about the duration or the length of it? Well, we've already hit on that, so I'll go quickly on this. Genesis 9.17, or excuse me, 9.16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. It is all eternal. This is an eternal covenant. Again, just a, a reminder that when we start to look at these other covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, so on and so forth, these are not voiding out these other covenants. This covenant still stands today. And we need to understand that's very, very important. What about the nature of it? Well, God promised that he would never again destroy the earth in the same way, right? But more than that, he promised to preserve it. I love those words in Genesis 8.22 where he says that, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That is a beautiful, beautiful reminder. So we see God's nature to forgive and to restore despite his right to judge the earth. We see that he is gracious, gracious, gracious. And ultimately, right, it's just a foretaste of the the new covenant that we're going to see. He saved just a few from the flood, from total corruption. He saved just a few and you think about how narrow that gate was. Think about how narrow the gate is to really that leads to everlasting salvation, right? So how does this correlate with the other covenants? Well, with the backdrop of the nature of man, that his thoughts are only evil continuously, that from our youth, that is our nature. It is our heart's nature to be evil and corrupt. God's redemptive plan to restore the people of the earth to himself progresses advances, if you will, from the Noahic covenant as he advances to the Abrahamic covenant. And just a quick summary of what the Noahic covenant is. It's a covenant with all mankind, including both the redeemed and the unredeemed, in which God promised never to destroy the earth by flood again. Instead, God would provide a regular cycle of seasons for as long as the earth remains. So let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant. Where can you find the Abrahamic covenant? Well, generally, you find it in three portions of Genesis. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. That's primarily where you're going to find this covenant. 
I'm going to start with the background or the need for this covenant. What do you guys think the background or the need for the Abrahamic covenant is? What could the covenant, what, what could be the background or the need for this particular covenant, the Abrahamic covenant? What do you think? Somebody say something. Say that again. To set people apart? Sure, absolutely. What did we just talk about was man's problem? Sinfulness, right? So what do we need when we have a problem? A solution. The background or the need for the Abrahamic covenant is that God is offering up a solution for the sinfulness of man that leads to death, right? You can look at Genesis 3, 1, all the way through 11, 26. We're not going to read all of that. That would take a long time. But let's focus specifically on Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Genesis 3, 14 through 19. And let's just do this by way of reminder. Talking about the fall here, right? The Lord God said in verse 14 of chapter 3, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and he shall bruise your heel. Or you shall bruise his heel, excuse me. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and shall rule over you. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So verse 19 again, it shows us again that the, the relationship has been broken because of the fall, because of the sinfulness of man. The relationship between God and man, severed, right? And think about this. Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the night with God. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that they got to do that. And because of their sinfulness, that was done, cut off, no more. And because death is the consequence of that, God had to establish a plan. Genesis 3.15, we see this. So, we know that he is starting this uh, process through this Abrahamic covenant. Let's look at the offering of the covenant to kind of establish this a little bit more. Look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. And this is the offering of the covenant, and this is going to clarify a lot of things for us. Genesis 12, verse 1 through 8 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Don't miss that. That is crucial. He goes on. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old, and when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, 
and Lot his brother's son and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in, in, Har- in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak at Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had, who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the, on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So the Lord is establishing this relationship through Abram. He's starting to unfold this redemptive plan through him. He says some things here, right? He says, I will make you a great nation. He says, I will uh, make your name great. And through you will be blessing. You will be blessed and other nations will be blessed because of you. And so we're going to start to see this unfold. This is just the beginning, the backdrop of what the Lord is going to do to use the offspring of Abram to become the nation of Israel so that the rest of the the nations can be blessed. We see this unfolded a little bit more. Flip over to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. First five verses talk about how Abram had not yet received a son and was wondering about the promise that the Lord had made him, that he said that he would have offspring, lots of offspring. Abram's wondering about that. He's questioning that. Verse 5 says this, And he brought him, that's the Lord, brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, Abram, and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring breed. Just reestablishing that promise that he made. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Don't miss that verse either. Because if you look in Romans, right, that talks about that he is the forefather of those who believe in God in faith. That is how we are related to Abram now. And we're going to unfold that later in the new covenant. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Verse 9, here is the offering of the covenant. Here is the giving of the covenant. Pay attention to this. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Look at this connection. We're going to see this connection so clear in Israel and how he establishes his Mosaic covenant. Don't miss that. He goes on, verse 15, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces, or these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. 
the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Very clear promises here, right? Again, notice, he promises land. He promises offspring. He promises to make his name great, that all the nations will be blessed because of this relationship. So first, it's offered individually to Abram and his direct descendants, right? Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But then it becomes corporate. It becomes corporate and eventually spreads worldwide. All nations will be blessed because of you, Abram, and because I am making this covenant with you. This is just a foretaste of what he's doing to redeem all of mankind. He's setting up this relationship. He's establishing this relationship in order to uh, fix that severed tie that happened in the fall. He's trying to uh, fix this relationship through this Abrahamic covenant. And he's saying, in future implications are, everyone will be brought into this fold. This is absolutely crucial. So what is the sign of this covenant? What do you guys think the sign of this covenant is? What's that? Circumcision. Absolutely. Flip over to chapter 17. Chapter 17. You can look all through chapter 17, verses 1 through 27. But I want to focus on verses 10 through 14. Lord says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, brought with your, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is uh, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall be my covenant in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What is significant about this term circumcision or this act of circumcision? What are some thoughts that come to mind? What do you guys think? Why is this so significant? Well, first of all, what is it meant to do? What is the purpose of it? Absolutely. Sets you apart, right? Absolutely. Identification with God. What else? Think future implications of this specific term, circumcision. What is this a foretaste of? What eventually does Scripture say about circumcision for the church? You must be circumcised what? Of the heart. This is absolutely fundamental. Again, it's all tied together, beloved. It is all tied together. He is saying, you set yourself apart. You are a nation that I am calling out, that I am establishing my covenant with you to be a specific people, and this is the sign that you are to do it with. Why circumcision? Well, there's a few speculations about that. I actually was asked this question last time I taught this, and I had no answer, so I'm glad that I have at least somewhat of an answer, or what I think is a good answer. 
This is where the seed is passed, right? This is where the offspring is passed through generation, through generation, through generation. But on a very practical level, this is where a lot of disease spread, where a lot of sickness spread back then. And so not only was it to be a sign, but it was a sign of cleanliness, setting them apart as a clean nation, a holy nation, a unique nation. But I don't think that it's too far-fetched to look at the fact that this is where this, the seed is spread. He says, through your offspring, I will make a great nation and bless the nations. So circumcision is very specific, but it is very fundamental, and it will ultimately lead to the circumcision of the heart, right? Romans 4.11, you can see it there. What about the conditionality? What do you guys think is the conditionality of this covenant? Are there any conditions? No conditions. And who gives this covenant? God and God alone, right? He puts Abram in a deep sleep just in order to enact this. And he walks through these pieces of of animal to enact it. And it says, verse 9, And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. So there are no conditions, and it's given unilaterally by God. What about the duration or the length of it? Well, chapter 17, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. You're going to start to see this term, everlasting covenant, over and over in these covenants because they are all everlasting. Well, not all of them, but they are everlasting covenants. They are promises that will continue and will not stop. Everlasting covenants. And think about that. That, is, that leaves great implications on the future promises that the Lord has given to Israel, right? Or to Abram, right? He says, I will give you all this land to possess. They have not possessed all of the land. That is still a future promise. That has eschatological or in-time implications. They have not yet conquered all of the lands. And you can look in that and see in Joshua... 18, Joshua 23, where he indicts them that they had not been obedient to conquer all the lands yet. So this even has future implications. These things have not yet been completed. So what's the nature of this covenant? Well, Abram's lineage or his seed will become a great nation, will receive the land promised to Abraham, will receive blessing, and it will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It is an answer to... To re- the re- it is an answer and redemptive plan to the sinfulness of men and their inability to honor Yahweh. This contrasts the faithfulness of God with the unfaithfulness of man. He's saying, you have no hope. You cannot do these things on your own, and so I'm going to establish this covenant with you. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it through Abraham. Correlation with the other covenants, the Abrahamic covenant includes the promise to bless Abraham make him a great nation, and to eventually bless the other nations. Through Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the lineage of Abraham continues the progression or the advancement that will lead into the making of the nation of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant becomes the spring from which all the other covenants flow. Again, I know it's probably a little difficult to get all this, grasp this all right now, but as we get into these other covenants, it's going to start to be more and more clear. Just like I said earlier, 
progressive revelation. The Lord doesn't just give it to you all at once. He slowly allows us to see it. But we're going to tie all this together at at the end. So just a quick summary of this specific covenant. God's covenant with Abraham is the foundation of all his covenants with Israel. Specifying a land, a multitude of descendants, and Abraham as a means of blessing for other nations. I think that's a good place to stop. Next week we'll get to the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenants. And start to see a lot more clarity on this. Thoughts, questions before we step out? Concerns? Okay. Thank you all. See you all next week.